It is entirely clear to me that none of the people currently writing policy has any understanding of the gains industry. That is, that is one generation, and it's understandable, right? I mean, of course, that, that was never part of their life. And they, by the time games became a thing, you know, they weren't part of that audience at all. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by MuniPro, the Government Finance Officers Association, Build America Mutual, and Odyssey Advisors. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. You know, it's fall. Obviously, it's fall. It's the middle of October. But I feel like here in, in farm country, there's like a fall fest or parade or giant pumpkin viewing like every couple of days. I mean, it's uh, it's been it's been there's been a lot of fall and it's been really fun. <laughs> I feel like this month is flying by because there's just a lot to do. <laughs> Indeed. I, it was interesting. I saw some numbers the other day getting at the question of whether we have reached peak fall. And, and one <laughs> of the things that I decided was that sales of all things pumpkin spice are actually down a touch uh, this in this, at this point in October relative to previous Octobers. And wouldn't surprise me in the least to find out that we have completely saturated the world with <laughs> pumpkin spice at this point. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sad that. about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of fall, you know, we always we're both um, sports fans, and sports come up on this podcast all the time. Liz, this is sort of peak uh, sports season as well. It's that magical time of the year when you have baseball playoffs, you have the NFL, college yes. football is at sort of the peak of its season. Hockey comes around when he's getting ready for basketball. It's that moment in the year when there's just a lot of really great sports happening. If you're into that sort of thing, and so we thought we would, given all of that, go in a completely different direction with this podcast. <laughs> and talk about what is arguably the the most important but maybe overlooked part of sports as it relates to state and local finance, potentially at least, and that is video games. And we're going to have a very, very special guest to uh, visit with us on this, uh, Joost van Droinen from NYU and uh, a, a prolific uh, investor, entrepreneur, advisor, writer on all things video games. He's going to talk to us about the state of play no pun intended, or perhaps pun intended, with respect to video games and what that means for state and local public finance. This comes up all the time in so many different ways on this podcast. We, we talk often about how so much of what we do in public finance at the state and local level is grounded in these sort of 19th century systems. We have a sales tax system that was designed to tax manufactured goods as they were produced and then transported across state lines. Income tax works very much the same way, different types of fines and fees. And lots of what we do at the state and local level is kind of predicated on this idea that there's a thing that is either made or provided and then can be tracked. And yet so much of what's happening in today's economy is the digitization of commerce, the digitization of services, the digitization of information driving everything. We've talked many, many times about how so much of what we're trying to do in state and local public finances catch up in that space, build broadband provide different types of tax incentives for tech companies to grow, all of those kinds of traditional tools that we have that are applied to this very different kind of 21st century economy. And today's topic of video gaming is squarely in that space. When you think about some of the big challenges in your own observations with respect to the public finance of a digitizing economy, what comes to mind? 
Yeah, and I think the evolution of video gaming and and the size of the industry and how people play it and and the money to be made off of it is is a really good. I mean, it has also changed so much along with the way that state and local governments have have tried to tax stuff. I mean, we've gone from arcades to in home games to you know with the cartridges, and I mean, <laughs> it's still a running joke with me and my friends. Like whenever anything's broken, the first answer is like, "Well, you, did you take the cartridge out and blow on it and put it back in?" <laughs> it's like, that always worked with Nintendo cartridges when the game wasn't working. And a lot of people who grew up with that, the, the still this physical stuff are now the policymakers looking at a world where almost none of it is physical. I mean, it's all apps, it's all online. And that's, you know, that's happening with video games, that's happening with money, that's happening with baseball cards, that's happening with art. I mean, it's happening with kind of everything that that we grew up having actually be something physical. It's all turning online. And I think one of the difficulties maybe for policymakers around all that stuff, but maybe particularly with video gaming because it's seen as like something fun and and frivolous is is whether or not to take that seriously and um and i think a lot of times state and local governments have um have seen something like this like video gaming or maybe it was airbnb back in the day or uber things like that first starting out where you're like oh that's interesting how weird and but not to sit down and really think about the long-term impact of of something like that and with video gaming turning from something that is is a thing that happens in homes to an entire industry complete with esports. Um, that is something that state and local policymakers should be thinking about now, because it at least based based on what I see from my ten year old son and his friends, I don't I don't think that's getting any smaller. It's it seems to be going in the other direction. I agree completely, and from my fourteen year old, see a, a very <laughs> similar sort of thing. And yeah, it does raise that kind of larger question too of to the extent that the that video gaming in particular is is really about those communal experiences it's about mm-hmm. having a, a shared experience with with friends and sometimes with thousands of strangers at a time there is a sense of connectivity that comes with it it does really get the imagination going about what kinds of other sort of connectivity could be fostered and whether there's opportunities there we make jokes about you know the metaverse and mm-hmm. uh, back in the day it was second life you know those kinds of things which early clunky but early attempts to kind of tap into exactly what it seems like video gaming has tapped into and it does make you think that there's a whole different way, given the way this generation interacts with one another, uh, a whole different way of thinking about delivering services, a whole different way of paying for services, a whole different way of thinking about what public value is in the first place. So it definitely raises a lot of these bigger questions and is something that we should take seriously. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Joost van Drunen. Professor at the Stern School of Business at New York University, and also an investor, entrepreneur, advisor, and all things video game industry. Real pleasure to have you here with us on the Public Money Pod, Professor Ben Druden. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Yeah, welcome to welcome to the pod. Uh, we we've been excited about this episode for a while. It's it's a really kind of fun uh, fun topic for us. Before we kind of launch into some of the more details, many of our listeners are probably unfamiliar with, you know, what 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 is the video game industry other than, you know, the stuff I buy for my kids. And so can you start out by telling us, you know, how do you define this industry? What are the products and services, uh, you know, and how do people make money at it? That's an excellent question. It's a it's also a very common question. It's a for some reason. I thought I was just visiting video games as a temporary topic to speak about entertainment at the start of my career. It turns out I've been explaining <laughs> what video games are for the last 15 years. So I'm happy to do that. It's, um, it's, a, it's a matter of fascination. So interactive entertainment is the more formal way to say it, I guess. Uh, it really ends up being a 
form of entertainment or amusement specifically geared towards consumers, whether they play on PC or console or mobile devices. And it's the type of entertainment that you have that's not film, it's not music, it's not sports. It sits in its own category in that it fundamentally requires audiences to participate. It asks you to do something, right? When you play Candy Crush, you're going to have to move some candies around to crush them. When you play Mario, you have to jump on platforms and you have to make decisions. And that's that degree of agency, that, that level of autonomy, that's sort of, the uh, for me, the distinguishing factor to it. Um, and so that today, that sounds all very cute, of course, but that's a uh, entertainment industry that I, as I counted up, reaches almost $300 billion a year annually in direct consumer spending. And we'll get to that in a second, why I say direct. It is a globally a large and very rapidly growing industry compared to more conventional forms of entertainment like music and uh, television and, and more conventional forms of media. You know, in many ways, the companies that you see do well in those categories are relatively new. So you have labels in music and film and TV. And in Hollywood, uh, most of them are absent from the gaming category. Uh, the, the ecosystem is dominated by a few different participants. Uh, at the top sit the platforms. Historically, the major ones would be like Nintendo, uh, Microsoft, and Sony, the manufacturers of consoles that, uh, in addition to the hardware, also sell software and facilitate third-party software. Um, but increasingly, of course, particularly with the popularization of the smartphone, companies like Apple and Google play a significant role. And then finally, you also have a lot of companies in Asia and increasingly non-endemic firms that are butting into the space. So Tencent is really the largest game company in the world with $34 billion in annual revenue. Uh, you know, it's a company that is the largest and also the least known uh, for mm. some reason. That kind of racks up the big players. Uh, the major platforms are PC, console, and mobile. Mobile is the largest one. It accounts for about half of all the consumer spending, and it's uh, mostly done by way of uh, microtransactions. Games are free on your mobile phone. You try them out. If you like them, then maybe over time you'll decide to spend $5 on some kind of in-game currency, on a cool hat, uh, on an expansion, on a level, or some kind of additional feature. And then if mobile is half, the next one down is uh, console, and the next one down is from there is PC. You know, kind of depending on the year, uh, because mobile differs from, say, console. Console has a, a hardware cycle, so it tends to be a little lumpier and more cyclical, whereas mobile is a little bit more steady in that sense. It's four to one in, in, the, in ratio. So, uh, you know, if uh, mobile is, say, $100 billion a year, console ends up somewhere about 60, and then mm -hmm. PC is around 30, 35. Um, the same goes for the audience for that. Um, mobile is by far the most mainstream one with the largest category of people playing. Console is a little bit more involved, you know, because you have, you know, an install base, it costs 500 bucks to get in. But PC, that's really the high end. Uh, where people build their own PC rigs during the pandemic. There was a, there was a run on chipsets and graphic cards and fancy curved monitors and all this stuff because people want to build themselves sort of like the, you know, the Porsche of PC gaming, if you will. As I compare to other forms of entertainment, you mentioned film, you mentioned other types of uh, entertainment venue. What, what, is, what is 300 billion relative to those others? That's a good question, right? The film industry and the music industry are usually the go-to categories. Um, so globally, the film and, uh, and movie industry amounts to about uh, $94 billion a year. Still very large, but you know, let's call it half or a third of the games industry. And music 
because of a variety of different uh, models that uh, underlie it, it's, it's really only $26 billion a year. So combined film and music are less than half of gaming. What's different about the kind of revenue model here is that sponsorships and indirect revenue and advertisers have been mostly absent from gaming throughout the course of its history. That has a lot to do with sort of the cultural differences. Making a game and then hanging billboards in them hasn't really gone over very easily with like creatives. It's not a, a, a natural fit and it doesn't really fit into the production process. So it's both you know, from a production standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint, like it's been hard to reconcile the two. And so all of the revenue that is generated in gaming is direct consumer revenue as opposed to indirect consumer revenue in these other categories. What's changing now, and it's sort of like an eye on the future, is that you know, because game, games have gone mainstream, it seems like the dam is finally cracking and, uh, and ads and advertisers and sponsorships are starting to, to, to seep into the industry in a more significant way. So that's going to drastically change again uh, sort of its ecosystem overall. I, I would like to kind of jump into to you know the more um, active participation esports and um, and and how video gamers uh, themselves make money in the industry. Um, can you talk about that? Just um, you know, as and first of all, maybe define it for what for our listeners as well, and talk about the growth prospects for that side of the industry. You know, playing competitively has always been around. If you've ever been in an arcade, it's always been a matter of credible social significance to have your three initials at the top of the, the high score. And so that's always been sort of part of play, but it's it's not a new phenomenon. What is new about esports is that you start to organize these events in sports stadiums with thousands of just delirious fans watching a, you know two groups of people sitting behind a PC playing some totally opaque game that makes no sense to, to any outsider. And that's both, I think, the appeal and also it makes it so difficult. In order to understand esports, you have to understand the change in revenue models. Conventional gaming, as perhaps most people know it, is a, a largely a product-based business where you go to the store and you buy a console, you buy a disc or a cartridge, and then you go home and you, that's where you play. Over the last decade or so, last 15 years, the emergence of games as a service really allowed people to play for a much lower price point. Free-to-play gaming is sort of the, uh, the obvious example of that. So you have a lot of games that have racked up a lot of users, a lot of players build on the network effects that these online multiplayer games facilitate. But to get those people into the ecosystem is to ask them, means asking them for no money up front and really just spending their time. So because free-to-play and multiplayer gameplay in particular became a dominant form of gaming over the last decade, to attract people, you have to do more than just give them something for free, right? Mm -hmm. Initially, it's a great substitute because now I'm not spending 60 bucks. I can just go on a browser or my iPhone, whatever. But over time, it's like, okay, well, check this out. We also have this cool other thing that you don't have yet. And so free-to-play game companies started to differentiate and expand their offerings to also include people in the, in the larger universe around it and so league of legends is a good example here and they built on the tournament i say circuit circuit that you would see historically with say magic the gathering magic the gathering the dorky card game you know makes tons of money and has like deep deep loyalty from its fan base they also have a world championship where people are very competitive to win the trophies in the same way that you see that in any kind of other competitive setting esports emerges as sort of the free-to-play version of all this in a digital setting. And so League of Legends and Dota 2 and Valorant and Overwatch, they all start 
organizing their own tournaments purely because they want not just to get people to play the game at home by themselves, but also then to have a venue to go to in the real world and you know attend it and, and add to the mystique of this game. But now, if you've never seen any of this, it probably feels like you're lost your mind you know, you're, or you're in the wrong building because it's really, it's very, very opaque, right? It's very like a, a deep sort of a locally culturalized setting. Accessing it is fascinating though. Like if you, if you understand the games, if you see what's going on, on the screen, if you can see the pace with which people can play, uh, you know, you just, you, you, it becomes obvious at some point that in the same way that Ronaldo is just a gifted, hardworking, disciplined soccer player, the same applies to people that can do really well in games. They, they just are a level above everybody else. And that adds to the appeal that gives you something to talk about. But most of all, it's, you know, we never go to sports games either to purely digest the informational value of 22 men in shorts kicking a ball around. You go and watch these things to share it with others, right? And so it gives this expansion where gaming was in a very isolated form of gameplay early on. First, it became social online, and with esports, it becomes social offline. And I think that that's you know the sort of secret power behind esports. Joost, the the Dutch have a saying, and I can't. I'm not going to get it right, but it's it's something like to fall, something like to fall with the door into the house. <laughs> yes, is uh, maybe you can say it in Dutch. But as I understand it, that's that's a Dutch way of saying you know let's let's get to the point. Yeah, this, this is, after all, the, the public money pod. So I guess the questions about what this means for state and local public finance kind of follow naturally from what we've been talking about. This obviously a lot of money, very large, very growing industry, and an industry that appeals to a demographic that economic development folks uh, are, are falling over themselves to be able to, to try to access kind of young educated consumers that are into these communal experiences. So we could we could talk all day, I'm sure, about kind of what this means for state and local public finance. But on this podcast, we talk all the time uh, kind of from a couple different perspectives, particularly in the area of like tax preferences, infrastructure investment, you know, regulation. These are the, the kind of typical tools that we're thinking about when we think about how state and local public finance can influence the, the growth of an industry or the trajectory of an industry. So let's maybe take on that hypothetical just for a moment. So let's say you're the governor of a state, or even better, I guess in your case, you're advising the governor of a state uh, who's interested in making video gaming uh, a thing in their state, trying to make their state as hospitable as possible to gaming. Let's maybe take those one at a time. Are there are there tax sort of considerations, state and local tax considerations that are are relevant here when designers and and others are are thinking about where they want to uh, allocate their capital? That's a that's a fun question. I'll I'll try my best. Uh, you know, I'm I'm so um, anchored in the, the the in this particular question to think about New York City because I teach and live in uh, Brooklyn here. It's come up over the last 10, 20 years repeatedly. It's like, why don't we have a more significant presence of game development, game design in the in a city where you have abundant musicians, filmmakers, fashion, artists. I mean, it has every other form of cultural expression, but why not here? Mm -hmm. And of course, the immediate answer is, well, it's expensive. So yes, you could obviously subsidize and say, if you're building X, then we'll give you a credit. You know, housing, personnel, those tend to be really the most expensive assets, uh, particularly in the beginning. Building up a team that works well together, particularly a seasoned 
developers and designers. That's very difficult to do. So there's a few examples that I can remember from here in New York, for instance, where Avalanche had a studio that was made up of 100 people, and they would have uh, mostly people on staff that were later in their career that just wanted to live in a more interesting place than some flyover state, let's say. They were tired of the suburbs. They wanted to enjoy the city. So they would coax them to say, hey, come work here. We'll set up the studio. And that was one of the ways that they could differentiate. In the same way that a university like NYU gives you fancy faculty housing once you get tenure, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's really the selling point is the urban center. So making that diversity something appealing to creators, I think, is one way to go. However, in the case of New York, the problem is this. We're about an hour away from Montreal, and they just give you money to come set up shop there. So... Mm -hmm. You know, mm. the advice, of course, immediately goes toward like, well, yes, you have all these tax credits that you can provide and make the investment much cheaper. At the same time, you end up having to compete with other centers that are much more established and already have a huge infrastructure. In advising this hypothetical governor, I would say there has to be a degree of uh, awareness around what the competitive landscape looks like and if it really can play a significant role. And so as a result, in New York City, you have a few medium-sized studios. Really, the biggest one is Take-Two Interactive. And so you end up with really one major firm that is the, is the tent pole, as opposed to on the West Coast, where you have much larger tech and entertainment industry from which... You then can find the resources as a game development studio to, to, to build on. So the advice would be, like, depending on the existing infrastructure that's available, whether that's just great tech companies or other internet-focused or entertainment-focused services, subsidize those and see if the spin-off there makes sense. Atlanta is one of those centers where that seems to be coming out uh, more, and I think that that has a lot to do also with its geographic location. But you have to have some other thing that builds towards it, right? My mind immediately, and I guess that's really the uh, in a roundabout way to arrive at an answer, the one thing that always seems to be missing is education. You know, yeah. The moment that you want to build an industry, it's like, well, you have to have people that can do stuff. Yeah. So it's just not a, and not as a promotional thing, but the NYU Game Center, for instance, is one of those initiatives here in New York where they spent the last 10 years building up a program and then eventually have an incubator program and eventually have enough critical mass to start really attracting some, some venture capital and so on. But it takes 10, 15 years and it starts with education. Like there is not enough professional workers in the games industry to uh, to meet demand but it is also a 10 to 15 year time horizon for political decision makers that probably haven't touched the controller themselves in decades so for them it's a little bit like asking you know how many more seesaws should we build education at a practical level in by way of universities subsidize that put money there as well as subsidies for you know the existing studios and also like a better conversation around it like the let me put it this way. I teach 60 students every semester. I'm not a great teacher. I'm not some you know, charismatic genius in front, of a, in front of a blackboard. However, demand is such that I always have a wait list. Right? So there is an entire generation that wants to know. And so if you just listen to them and see what they need and want, subsidize that part, I think that that would be some of the lower hanging fruit that's missed currently. Do you think there's some kind of, I don't want to say stigma to that, but like a generational divide in the sense that those who would be making the programming decisions think that video games isn't a serious thing to have an entire college course about, for example? Absolutely, absolutely. The um, I guess the most tangible example of that is uh, I spent a lot of time in my career looking at the media concentration. Recently, the FTC fought the proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard, uh, the largest American publisher in North America by Microsoft. 
you know, it's like a $70 billion deal and it's a lot of, you know, dust gets kicked up. And then as you read through the trial proceedings and as you see politicians not just question the merits of the deal, but also the people questioning Lena Khan, the head of the FTC, as to what does she think she's spending time and money on? It is entirely clear to me that none of the people currently writing policy has any understanding of the games industry. That is that is one generation, and it's understandable, right? I mean, of course, that that was never part of their life, and they, by the time games became a thing, you know, they weren't part of that audience at all. At the same time, you see, for instance, um, younger politicians take to Twitch and play games for three hours with a bunch of other, you know, well-known names, let's say, and they attract hundreds and thousands of just constituents, young people, and to kind of show a different side of themselves. Uh, the Biden campaign had was inside of you know, a bunch of different video games at the time to promote its presence and promote its messaging to a young, you know, set of voters and constituents. So it's clear to me that at the highest level of government, this is totally not something on their minds, but it's starting to seep in the in the lower end, right? In the, in the newer generation of, of policymakers and the aspiring leaders. And I think that that's very encouraging, but that's also very slow. Let me talk for a second about broadband a bit which has been a, mm-hmm. a theme on this podcast. And I guess there's two sides to this as it relates to this conversation. On the one hand, do the massive investments being made in, in broadband expansion now all over the country as a public infrastructure concern. So mm-hmm. I guess one part of the question is, does that have any influence in, in your mind on the on the growth of, of gaming, particularly in areas where, as we were saying, in a PC in particular, if you haven't been able to get on and, and have the speed that you need to participate, is, is that a, an underserved part of the market? And I guess then the other side of that, from a, a regulatory standpoint too, as we were just saying, there's in some ways, it seems like at the federal level, and I think some states too, there's an instinct to try to regulate this market as if it were a traditional media or communications sort of a, of a market. And in some ways it is, and in some ways it isn't. The infrastructure supporting those markets like broadband uh, may or may not be regulated in a way that's hospitable to, to gaming as we know it. So I guess there's you know, two pieces to that. The investments in broadband, will that make a difference? And are we regulating broadband and access in a way that's good for this industry? The precursor that comes to mind is uh, South Korea. Uh, South Korea is one of the countries that started 20 years or so ago investing heavily in its internet economy, as they called it at the time. And so they have, to say it simply, the fastest broadband connection and the most pervasive broadband access that you could imagine. And that's brought that country online in a big way, as you can imagine. They also are at the forefront of not just game design, they also have a lot of innovation as a result. When I mentioned free-to-play earlier, those were revenue models initially experimented on in Korea. Ownership of games and games devices and you know how people spend their money is very different over there than it is perhaps in uh, the U.S. And, and throughout Europe. People don't buy consoles, simply put. They play on a PC, at a PC cafe. They play on their phone and so on. So broadband there was a direct had a direct impact on popularity of gaming and people's familiarity with uh, not just gameplay, but also just sort of being part of a larger online economy. Korean government didn't put a bunch of cables in the ground so that people could play games, obviously. They did it as part of a broader uh, effort to get everybody up to speed with this new technology that they believe was, was going to be disruptive and you know the source of economic growth in the future. 
I think that in many ways it's remarkable that uh, you know in some other countries you don't quite see that same appetite. I don't want to be too negative on the U.S. Like I think, for instance, throughout Europe, there's uh, quite a bit of lack of investments uh, across different countries. Even the major economies there are only now starting to really focus on this. And you know, they all come at it over there. Like if you talk um, to the Germans or the French, they come at it from this highbrow cultural angle. It's like, why, why don't you just subsidize broadband more? On the one hand, the need to be present in a cultural sense, but then the unwillingness to invest in the actual infrastructure. I think that, that doesn't make any sense to me. That seems like it's contradictory. Uh, the U.S. has done a reasonable job of it. I, I say based on those examples that improving broadband will always drive growth, in particular also in gaming. That's, you know, people will look for things to do and they will find that playing with others is sort of the obvious way to do it. You know, when you say regulation, I think of you know, what's allowed in the context of gaming, like how do particular games get access to or uh, what, you know, how do you classify different game genres? The difficulty that I have there is that in the context of free-to-play games, once these game companies realize that they have, let's say, they have to facilitate 100 million active players, which, yeah, this is just, I, I, I think it's hard to explain to people, like, to help visualize how big that is. But so even like a major release, like a, let's say a House of Dragons on HBO, when they go live at their season premiere or their season finale, like you have like 12 million concurrent users, which is a lot of people. I don't know 12 million people. That seems like a lot of people. Gaming regularly will have 50 to 100 million concurrent players or active players in their ecosystem. So it's massive. So what do you see with companies like Riot, for instance, which is a subsidiary of Tencent, it's maker of League of Legends. When it comes to regulations, you know, they sort of bypass that entire conversation. What they build is their own internet backbone because they realized that as long as they were dependent on service providers to ping a signal between three different data centers, there would always be a degree of latency that impacts their player base's experience. And so they just step over all of those things and just build their own. They become so wealthy that they can invest in their own infrastructure, their own data warehouses, and just have a direct pipe between them and their player base. So I don't know where that fits into regulation, but it becomes clear like once you have network effects of that scale, that becomes an incentive for these companies to invest in their own. And Meta did the same thing. They built their own routers for that matter. So I don't know what you could do for those large ones. I think for the beginners and the medium size, the small, medium-sized companies, making that easier, providing more access, I think will always be, and I don't say this because I'm a technologist, I don't deeply skeptical of most technologists, but I think just pure and plain and simple access, I think that that's really the main key of it. And then perhaps, uh, you know, enforcing it a bit like... Um, just, you know, I'm not a regulator, but let's say like in the same way in New York, you can get the permits to build a fancy high rise on condition that you make some subset of your apartments available to people that can't really afford to live there. But you just want to have diversity in, in say, income as well in your, in your community. And it's fair to make sure everybody gets a house, of course. In that same way you could do it with internet access. Like I don't, you know, to me, that should really be there should be a commons around this, like, you know, to not have access to solid broadband for gaming or other purposes, I think is, uh, you know, detrimental for the long term for any kind of educational purposes or otherwise. Like, so, so I would always be a proponent in like release uh, and, and, uh, and more lax regulatory and, and very dedicated efforts to get everybody online. So, uh, yes, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, the upside of this mm -hmm industry there are certainly critics who point to gaming and and they draw parallels to uh, alcohol tobacco other harmful uh, sorts of habits and you occasionally get 
uh, really extreme critics who say that this industry ought to be subject to a, a sin tax the way tobacco or alcohol or, or other industries ought to be. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on that? That's, that tells you exactly the type of person that's thinking about this stuff. So video games come from this place where I think, you know, everybody was in these sketchy arcades, hanging out with teenagers, spitting on the ground or whatever. It's like, it's just this weird <laughs> stereotype around that. And you're like, it's, it's not a casino. It's just a bunch of kids hanging out, socializing their way away from their parents and learning about the world, you know, sort of navigating that space. I think maybe Hollywood has created some kind of demogorgon around it, but it's, it's a really sort of, uh, it has like this distinctly negative connotation. Whereas, of course, like alcohol and tobacco, yeah, absolutely. That should totally be taxed to discourage people. In a contemporary context, uh, online games, uh, things like Roblox, Minecraft, Fortnite, while they seem probably very similar and therefore sort of sinful to some people, it's like the way I experience that personally is that this is where people socialize nowadays. Right? If you look at the transition in particular types of game modes over the last uh, 15 years, you see a switch from what used to be to be solo play, where I sit at home alone by myself uh, you know, and, and playing, to playing online with thousands of other people at the same time. So it goes from solo to social, to put it simply. Um, the audience there sort of tripled in size. So where you have about four to 500 million monthly active users for the, the top 100 games that offer solo play, you have about three to four times that for multiplayer gameplay. So this is really where the preference goes. People want to go online. They want to play with each other. They want to make friends. They want to go on quests. They want to go through whatever, like all the things that you do when you play with other people. And so this has become the norm of how we play nowadays. The idea that you would tax that, I mean, it's like asking, like it's like standing by the gate at my kid's playground, but your little jar and asking me to put in because I want him to get some fresh air and walk around. You know, to me, video games are the equivalent of a digital playground or at least should be. And so as a matter of so for anybody to want to tax that and put it in the same bucket as tobacco or alcohol, I find it fascinating. I think it says more about them than it says about games, to be honest. Professor Joost van Drunen, thanks so much for taking the time. If you're curious, you can read more of his stuff. Uh, like our own Liz Farmer, he's at Substack, Super Joost Playlist. Check it out. Uh, Professor van Drunen, thanks so much for giving us some time today on the Public Money Pod. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Joost van Drunen. That was such a, I, I think that was like a little, little bit in left field maybe for the public money pod. <laughs> um, that was, uh, but we covered a lot that I hope that state and local policymakers can can think about and take away from our conversation. And, and interestingly enough, so for this week's script from the headlines, I had a hard time, surprisingly, not surprisingly, finding something on video gaming, esports, anything like that, that was somewhat current on state and local tax policy, uh, which I think speaks to this this issue that it is very much still an under the radar type thing. But I did happen to find something uh, from Bloomberg tax notes that came out uh, in December, so uh, December 2022, and it talks about the connection between the Wayfair ruling and esports. And so this this piece is called "Leveling Up Sales Taxes for Esports Teams and Gaming Companies." It's written by two tax professionals, Paula Gustafson and Shazad Malik, and they say they point out that the Wayfair ruling has forced gaming companies, esports teams 
and professional gamers to comply with sales tax rules in multiple states in which they don't have a physical presence, obviously. But there is, of course, this period of catch up uh, between both the, the gaming companies that have to pay the tax and the states that are applying it. It kind of sets the stage a bit for esports, which I think is interesting. It talks about how the esports gamers have transformed video game competitions into spectator events, drawing in millions of fans worldwide. In 2021, more than 240 million in prize money was awarded, and many pro players earn a substantial portion of revenue from the sale of merchandise. So now here's where we get into the taxation piece. Uh, this merch is stuff like branded clothing, accessories, plush toys, uh, digital game art, and it's generating a genuine increase in income, the authors say, bringing with it the task of tracking state tax nexus thresholds and the increased complexity of state-level income reporting. So that's one piece of it. The authors advise that eMerch sellers need to proactively determine which states that they have to file and register in and, and to work with the revenue departments in those states. Um, it says additional problems are presented for gaming companies, esports teams, and professional gamers who try to comply with these sourcing rules for taxation. Unlike traditional businesses, gaming companies don't necessarily know where their customers reside or access the gaming servers from. This leads to additional complexity. No kidding. <laughs> uh, two more pieces in here. Um, many, interestingly, many esports and professional gamers travel to conventions and tournaments. Prize money is sourced where it was won in most states. Fortunately, or unfortunately, maybe <laughs> many esports conventions are held in Nevada or other places with no income taxation. I think that's fortunately on behalf of the prize winners. Uh, last point uh, that authors make is that state sales tax and income tax rules have changed. Gaming companies, esports teams, and professional gamers need to figure all of this out, basically. Um, and so, the, again, they point out, as, as we've talked about before, that the tax rules haven't caught up to the unique compliance challenge of esports and gaming companies. So this is just one little slice of, of kind of this larger topic that we've been discussing. Justin, what, what are some of the, the takeaways that you have from this, from this article? Yeah, I think I'm glad you found it. it. As you said, there's not a lot out there, but the few things that are out there, it's always this kind of emphasis that on um, just the incredible complexity surrounding this. At the same time, I do think that as we've talked about on this podcast many, many times before, the harmonization of local and state tax codes, local and state tax bases, a lot of that regulatory attention really does pave the way for what could turn out to be a, a pretty sensible approach to this. So we're at the early stages. We're just trying to figure out what this industry is and how it works, <laughs> but we're in a much, much, much better position as state and local finance folks, given that we have the Wayfair ruling and we have the streamlined state sales tax project. And we had Scott Pattison from the multi-state tax commission on not that long ago to talk about some of what's going on in that space. Even though it feels like we're far behind, we're in a better position to really understand and put in place a tax scheme that makes sense for this industry that can promote it and make sure that it's growing, but also recognizes that these are large events, not entirely unlike going to a large sporting event mm -hmm. where you would expect to pay an amusement tax on, on your ticket for admission. And you would expect to pay sales tax on all the merch that you purchase and all of those sorts of things. There's just this fundamental question of what does it mean to have prize winnings versus mm -hmm. to be a, a professional athlete, for instance, who is receiving income for the, you know, for, for playing for a team that happens to be housed in a certain place. And that's obviously a really, really big part of this. So fascinating stuff, really, really interesting twist on an old model. But I do think that I guess I'm optimistic. I think we're in a better position to be able to make the tax scheme work in this space. We just have to figure out what the heck this industry is and how it works. And that's going to take a lot of time and effort. Mm -hmm.
Thanks again to our Season 2 sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Podcast.